Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Tipsy Ghost. We're your tipsy hosts, Sarah, Sarah, and Lindsay. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. I just needed to share the most heartwarming thing that I heard today. Oh. Okay. There is, in California, something called Paws for Life. It's a prisoner program. Animals are rescued from shelters, mm-hmm. and they are sent to be trained I've by prisoners yeah. in like four different prisons within California. Yeah. And the inmates train them to be service dogs for all sorts of people. That's interesting. I love that so much. I was at Quest Diagnostics. <laughs> have some, like, how did you hear about this? I have a, some labs drawn, not for myself. And it, I heard it and I was just, it just made my day. It made me so happy. Yeah. Because not only are these people who have maybe, maybe not committed terrible crimes mm-hmm. now actually contributing to society in such a useful yeah. way. And finding a but purpose. But these animals yeah. are being rescued from overcrowding right. in shelters. And euthanizing. Yes. Mm-hmm. I loved everything about it. So what do they do once they train them? Do they get adopted out? They're animals. Yep. yep, They go to whoever should need them. Okay. Whether it be soldiers with PTSD. I love that. Or folks with any disabilities, anything like that. It just makes me so happy. Thank you for the heartwarming story. I needed a little positivity in my life. Yes. And now I'm going to come down hard on you too. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So you ask me to edit videos. Of when we go ghost hunting. Oh, no. That's how you pull your weight, yes. And there was one video I was watching when I had the phasma box going, so I could not hear anything that was happening. Uh Uh-oh. And at one point, one of you said, I'm going to use this opportunity to fart. (laughs) Do you remember this? It could have been either of us. It was in the attic. You both farted. Yes, Yes, we did. And it was so loud in my ears. (laughs) (laughs) And then you laugh and say, Lindsay has no idea. And we laughed so hard about it. Yes, I remember. Listen, farts are still funny. And it was on the actual video recording. It was on night vision. Yes, I I listened to it and watched. I'm so sorry. (laughs) What are we going to talk about tonight, you guys? A really sad case, actually. It is a sad case. Well, good thing we lightened it up. So this is the story of the Lindbergh kidnapping. All right, Charles Lindbergh, he was an American aviator, a military Mm -hmm. officer, an author, an inventor, and an activist. So he became famous because at the age of 25, he made the first nonstop flight from New York City to Paris. And this was on... I could do that. (laughs) May 20th to 21st, 1927. Could you? Because you weren't alive then. So Lindbergh, this was significant because he covered, it was a 33 and a half hour flight. It was 3,600 miles or 5,800 kilometers for our European friends. <laughs> and he did the flight alone in a plane called the Spirit of St. Louis. Did you know oh. that he, to save weight, <laughs> left his parachute out? Yes, because he wanted to carry as much gasoline as possible. So yes. he did not pack his parachute. It was not the first nonstop transatlantic flight, but it was the first solo transatlantic flight. It was the first one between two major city hubs and the longest transatlantic flight by almost 2,000 miles. So, of course, this skyrocketed him to fame. So, again, he did this flight, you know, in 1927. So, this is a few years later. He has tons of money. He's married now. Him and his wife are living a quiet life in New Jersey. So at approximately 10 p.m. on March 1st, 1932, the Lindbergh's nurse, Betty Gow, she found that their 20-month-old son, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., was not 
with his mother or in his room. And I don't know if I mentioned it, but uh, Lindbergh's wife is Anne Morrow Lindbergh. So Gal, the nurse, she then, of course, alerts the family right away, alerts Charles Lindbergh. Um, he went to the child's room and he found a ransom note containing some bad handwriting and grammar in an envelope that was laying on the windowsill. So, of course, he grabs his gun. He goes around the house and the grounds with the family butler, who was named Ollie Waitley. They found impressions in the ground under the window of the baby's room, pieces of a wooden ladder, and the baby's blanket. At this point, when they don't find anything, Waitley calls the Hopewell Police Department. Um, like I said, this is in New Jersey. And Lindbergh calls his attorney and his friend, Henry Breckenridge, and then the New Jersey State Police are called. So police officers from Hopewell Borough in New Jersey conducted an extensive search of the home and surrounding area. Word spread quickly about the kidnapping and hundreds of people showed up at the property, destroying any possible footprint evidence. A fingerprint expert examined the ransom note in ladder, but found no usable fingerprints or footprints. This led experts to believe that the kidnappers were wearing gloves and had covered their shoes. No adult fingerprints were found in the baby's room, including areas where witnesses admitted to touching things such as the window. But the baby's fingerprints were found. So here's the ransom note that they found and heads up. The grammar is terrible. So I'm going to read it verbatim the best that I can. It says, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, R-E-D-Y, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you were to deliver the money. Uh, we warn you for making any ding, <laughs> any ding public or, <laughs> or for notify the police the child is in good care. Uh, indication for all letters are signature and three holes. H-O-H-L-S. Holes. Holes. What is the hole? Holes. What is he like even trying to say there? Circles, I think. Like holes on the page. I don't know. Okay. So the bottom of the note had two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle with a hole punched through the red circle and two more holes to the left and the right. Holes. Got it. Okay. I think it means holes. Professionals determined that the note was written by one person and that they were likely German with limited English. The FBI had a sketch artist draw a portrait of someone who they thought might be the kidnapper. But my question is, how? If they had no clues, right? Yeah, where are they basing this off I don't know. They went to the room and the child was gone. And they found nothing. So... So they needed to get a better idea of who the kidnapper might be, obviously. So they looked at the ladder that was used in the abduction. Police noticed that it was built by someone who had experience in construction. Obviously, it was built well. It was examined for fingerprints, Mm -hmm. but none were found. They looked at the types of wood used and the pattern of nail holes to look for clues. On March 2nd, 1932, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover contacted contacted the police department to tell them that they could use the FBI for assistance. At this time in the U.S., kidnapping was a state crime, which is why the FBI FBI was not immediately involved. Mm A $25,000 reward was offered for anyone who could provide information pertaining to the case. The Lindbergh family added an extra $50,000 for the safe return of, quote, little Lindy. I thought that was cute. Lindy. I know. I love that. This would have been around $1,186,000 as of 2020. Keep in mind, though, this was during the Great Depression, so this would have been a huge chunk of money. 
On March 4th, 1932, a man named Gaston, I'm th- I think that's that's what I want to say. Gaston is always the bad guy. It's G-A-S-T-O-N. Gaston? I would no, say Gaston. Gaston. It's got to be Gaston. Gaston. Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Ga- oh no. <laughs> this is like a true villain name. Gaston B. Means. Oh, Gaston B. Mean. <laughs> G.B. Mean. Oh, that is the best villain name. So he enters this chat, right? Um, he claims that he's going to be pretty important in the retrieval of the baby Lindy. He claimed that weeks before the baby was abducted, he was approached to participate in a big kidnapping. He claimed that his friend was the kidnapper and that he made contact with his friend. And he convinced a socialite named Evelyn McLean to give him $100,000 so that he could give this friend the ransom money and get the baby back. Shockingly, though, he never returned the baby and also refused to give her money back. So he was just a scam artist. (laughs) Indeed. Evelyn reported him to the police and he ended up serving 15 years on embezzlement charges. In October 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt announced that the FBI would take over the case. And at this point, they still pretty much had no idea who had done this. They started focusing more on organized crime. So Charles Lindbergh contacted a person named Mickey Rosner. Also, Salvatore Salvi Spitali. Wait, Salvi Spitali? Yes. That is a fun Well, name. it's S-P-I-T-A-L-E. Salvi Spitali. I think I, it's got to be Salvi Spitali. I love it. Listen, I love it. And Irving Bits for help. <laughs> Mr. Bits? <laughs> Irving Bits. Sir Bits, Spitali, and Rosner. The three of them had contacts within the mob and could hopefully get some inside info. And at this time, some other organized crime figures, such as Al Capone, offered their help in exchange for money or legal favors, like release from prison. (laughs) How are they going to find the baby if they are in prison? Because he's got connections to the mob. That's true. So he's like, I will have the inside scoop. Although he was losing his mind because, you know, he, he had the steeds to the brain. Never good. So anyways, he asked to be released from prison in exchange for... Inside info, but this was denied. Yeah. So March 6, 1932, a new letter arrived at the Lindbergh home. It was postmarked from March 4th um, in Brooklyn and had perforated red and blue marks. A third ransom note arrived at Breckenridge's Mall and was also postmarked from Brooklyn. The letter requested that a man named John Condon should should be the go-between for the Lindberghs and the kidnappers. It also requested that the newspaper be alerted that a third ransom note had been received. The instructions were pretty specific and included the size of the box the money should come in and warned the family not to contact the police. I mean, police has been notified throughout this whole thing. I know. So why are you telling them now? Don't tell them about this letter. Just tell the newspaper. John Condon, he was a well-known guy from the Bronx. He was a retired school teacher, and he had offered $1,000 of his own money if the kidnapper handed over the baby to a Catholic priest. Aww. He received a letter from the kidnappers that authorized him to be the intermediary. Intermediary. The go-between, dude. The go-between. The messenger. He placed a classified ad in the paper that said, Money is ready. Jaffsy. Another code name. Oh, okay. And waited for further instructions. A meeting between, quote-unquote, Jaffsy and a member of the kidnapper group was scheduled, so Condon reported that the man sounded foreign, but he couldn't get a good look at him because they stayed in the shadows. So he did end up meeting this guy, but he never saw him. The man said, the other man, said his name was John and claimed to be a Scandinavian sailor, part of a gang of three men and two women. He said that the baby was on a boat 
<laughs> He's on a boat. <laughs> He's on a boat. I'm and on a boat, motherfuckers. <laughs> He's on a nautical theme. Okay. With his flappy floppies. Oh, sorry. Um, okay, but the baby was unharmed, but would only be returned in exchange for ransom. Uh-huh. Condon had some doubts that the gang member John had actually had the baby, so gang member John promised to send proof. The baby's sleep sack. Just like a, a nighty. Pajamas, if you will. Okay. March 16th, Condon received a package that contained the baby's sleeping sack, as well as another ransom note. The Lindberghs positively identified the clothing as their babies, and Condon placed another ad in the newspaper that stated, quote, money is ready. No cops, no secret service. I come alone like last time. And on April 1st, Condon received a letter that it was time for the ransom to be delivered. The ransom money was packaged in a wooden box that had been custom made so that it could be identified if it was found later. The money included gold certificates, and apparently at this time they were about to be taken out of circulation completely, so the hope was that if they were cashed in, it might raise some suspicion. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. The bills were unmarked, but the serial numbers were recorded so that they could track them down later. On April 2nd, Condon met up with gang member John and told him that they could only raise $50,000. So gang member John gave him the note that said that the baby was in the care of two innocent women. On May 12th, so this was quite a while later, that was uh, uh, April 2nd that he... Mm -hmm. It's like a month later. Yeah. Uh, So May 12th, two delivery truck drivers pulled over on the side of the road, which happened to be about four and a half miles away from the Lindbergh house. One of them went a little further into the trees so he could pee when he discovered the body of a toddler. The skull was badly fractured and the body was decomposed. It had obviously been scavenged by animals. The baby was positively identified by the nanny and Charles Lindbergh. June 1932, authorities began suspecting that maybe the crime had been committed by someone that the Lindberghs knew. So a woman named Violet Sharp was suspected as a conspirator. She was the nanny for a different family, but apparently they interviewed her and her story changed several times. So she was obviously nervous Mm -hmm. and that was enough to make her somebody that was suspicious suspicious yeah sadly she died by suicide before she could be questioned for a fourth time by police and her involvement was later ruled out after they verified her alibi for the night of march 1st 1932 did you read how she killed herself no cyanide oh i did read that yes like she was supposed to go and be questioned again and she took a cyanide poisoning I mean, how many times can you be questioned? Well, and like, it's sad now that we know that she was not really involved. Like, she was just probably so terrified of going to prison and probably thought she was going to go. It's sad. Because they, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the police to pin it on somebody. Oh, yeah. In this case. Condon was also questioned and lots of people thought that maybe he was involved. And he worked with the police, though, to try to find gang member John. It just never really happened. Investigators were basically getting nowhere, so they turned their attention to try and track the money that was used in the ransom. They made a document that had all the serial numbers that were used and distributed it throughout New York City. And a few of the ransom bills showed up from random locations like Chicago and Minneapolis, but most of them were never found. And remember those gold certificates yes. I was talking about? Yes. Yeah. They had to be exchanged for bills by May 1st, 1933. A few days before the deadline, a man brought $2,980 to a bank in Manhattan to exchange when they realized that these were the certificates used in the ransom. 
The man said his name was J.J. Faulkner of 537 West 149th Street, but no one named Faulkner lived at that address. There was a Jane Faulkner who lived at there 20 years earlier, but she denied any involvement. I also didn't understand as I was reading through this. I was like, so they gave them the money and then they didn't give them the child? No. How did this work? They gave them 50000 and then they were just like... So they gave them directions. Yeah. Uh, directions to where they could find the baby. With the two women. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yes. they led to nowhere. It was a dead end. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Over 30 months, a number of the ransom bills were spent throughout all of New York City, basically. Detectives were trying to track them down, but they realized pretty quickly that many of the bills were being spent along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan. And in that area is a German-Austrian neighborhood. Don't make fun of me. Oh, here we go. Let's hear it. Oh, it's not that hard, but Yorkville? Yorkville? Yes. Okay, that's not Am I saying that right? <laughs> okay, like, Yorkville. Like New York, but Yorkville? Yeah, that's yeah, what I was ahead. thinking. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if it's pronounced differently in German. I don't know. Oh, I think that's right. Okay. <laughs> so September 18th, 1934. So a Manhattan bank teller notices a gold certificate from the mm-hmm. ransom. Mm-hmm. And he also noticed a New York license plate number that was penciled into the bill's margin, um, which he traced to a nearby gas station. So the gas station manager had written down the license number because the person there was acting suspicious in quotations. Everybody's suspicious in these times. And thought that they might be using counterfeit money. So the license plate belonged to a sedan that was owned by Richard Hauptman of 1279 East 222nd Street in the Bronx. And he was an immigrant who had a criminal record in Germany. So, of course, police go. They arrest him. And he was carrying a single $20 gold certificate. And over $14,000 of the ransom money was found in his garage. He was arrested, interrogated, and even beaten at least once throughout the following day and night. Which I guess during that time, you know, you beat your suspects. So Hauptman stated that the money... Can you say, I think it's Hauptman. Hauptman? Yes. Hauptman? Hauptman. 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 Men. Yep. Hauptman's... <laughs> no, but yep. I don't like it. Okay. You say Haupt- however it makes it Oh, comfortable I was, and then you called me out. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Houtman stated that the money and other items had been left with him by his friend and his former business partner, Isidore Fish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, plot twist, Fish had died on March 29th, 1934, shortly after returning to Germany. And this is September 1934. <sighs> so Fish is... Fish did. He's swimming with the fishes. <laughs> I knew you were going to say Aww. that. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> I mean, is it el a poor schwimmt, guy when he's wanted? El schwimmt uh, mit der Fischen. Was that swimming what? with the fishes? Yes. Uh, he swims beautiful. with the fish. Oh. It's say probably it not One right. more time. It's probably not right grammar, so I don't really want to. No, I want to hear it. El, swim, el, el schwimmt mit der Fischen. <laughs> I love it so much. Thank you. All right. His friend was basically deceased. Okay, so got it. Houtman stated that he only learned about his friend's death after the shoebox was left with a considerable sum of money. He mm. kept the money because he claimed it was owed to him from a business deal that he and Fish had made previously. And he consistently denied any connection to the crime or any knowledge that the money in his house was from this ransom. So the police, of course, are searching his home. They find a considerable amount of additional evidence evidence that links him to the crime one was a notebook that contained a sketch of the construction of a ladder that was very similar to that that was found at the Lindbergh home 
Also, they found John Codden. What did you say? Codden or Coden? I thought Condon. it was Condon. Condon. <laughs> they also found John Codden. Condon. There's an like in condom. There. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, actually. Okay. <laughs> they also found John Condon's telephone number, his address, and this was all written on a closet wall in his house. What? On a closet wall. Nobody's going to find it. Nobody's going to find it. Let me etch this Let in. Let me just push my suits and shirts aside and write it here. Apparently, the closet was the best place to hide. The police will never look in my closet. But don't you feel like we've been to some old houses for like overnight hauntings and there's always stuff written in the closets? At um, Garnett. Yes. The radiology stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that was medical, but you know what I mean. But no, I get what you mean. Yeah. All right. So a key piece of evidence, uh, a section of wood was discovered in the attic of his <gasps> Not home. the wood. And it was determined by an expert to be an exact match to the wood that was used in the ladder construction that was found at the scene of the crime. <sighs> Things are adding questions. up. questions. Things are adding up. I mean, are they? I mean, kind of. So Houtman was indicted in the Bronx on September 24th, 1934, for extorting the $50,000 ransom from Charles Lindbergh. So at that point, they were kind of like, listen, you may not have done this. We don't have enough evidence, but you have the $50,000. So there's something going on here. Two weeks later, on October 8th, 1934, Houtman was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Two days later, he was surrendered to New Jersey authorities uh, by New York Governor Herbert lemon to face charges directly related to the kidnapping and murder of the child houtman was then moved to the hunterton county jail in flemington new jersey on october 19th of 1934 hmm hmm so yeah houtman was charged with capital murder and of course there needs to be a trial yes and the Hmm. trial held in flemington new jersey was quickly dubbed the trial of the century. Oh, I've never heard Objection, that before. Objection, Your Honor. <laughs> this is pre-OJ. I feel like we have heard the trial of I the century know. so many times. OJ, I feel like the Mansons. Yes. Yeah, but so in... All chron- in the same century. Chronological order. So this was a trial of the century until Manson. Manson was a trial of the century until OJ. What's the new trial of the century? It's been a few years since OJ. I think it's up for debate. All right, here we go. Trial of the Century. Trial of the Century. Can't wait to listen to this. <laughs> Every hotel room in the area was booked as reporters swarmed wow. the area. Key players that. were Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchard, Edward Riley for the defense, and New York Attorney, nope, New Jersey Attorney General <laughs> David Willens for the prosecution. Okay. So let's talk about the evidence that the prosecution presented. Some of it's going to be duplicate from what Lindsay said, but. It's just very interesting how the prosecution presented it. So first, the upwards of $20,000 of ransom money found in Hopman's garage. Mm-hmm. Second, right. the testimony alleging that his handwriting and spelling were similar to those of the ransom notes. So allegedly, eight handwriting experts pointed out similarities between the ransom notes and Hopman's writing samples. The defense tried to call an expert to argue this, but two experts refused to testify after being denied $500 for their service. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> other, other experts were retained by the defense, but they were never actually called to testify. Okay. Third, the prosecution introduced photographs demonstrating that part of the wood from the ladder matched mm-hmm. a plank from the floor of Houtman's attic. This wood evidence gets pretty intense. People are very passionate about <laughs> yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Uh, the wood evidence. Examine the wood. 
That's hard evidence. <laughs> what the lab reports as matching is the type of wood, mm-hmm. the direction or tree growth. Like the grain of the wood? Uh, then we're on to the milling pattern. So I think the grain and then how it was cut, maybe? Oh, okay. Um, next is the inside and outside surface of the wood. And lots of wood examination. Oh, here we are. And the grain on both <laughs> sides were identical. So identical woods. Identical woods. They all went the same way. On top of this matching wood. How many times are we going to say wood? (laughs) I think that's it. Okay. Uh, Four oddly placed nail holes (laughs) lined up with nail holes in Joyce and Hopman's attic. I was like, nail holes? Holes in the wood. All right. So oddly placed nail holes. Got it. Lined up with the nail holes in the Joyce's in Hopman's attic. Okay. So, So like what? Like this wood that was found in his attic came from the ladder or was it cut from the that's same that's what they're they're alleging is that okay. it's so similar that it had to have come from his attic okay gotcha the next piece of evidence is that of condon's address and yes. telephone number found to be written in pencil on a closet door in hopman's home in the closet they'll never find it <laughs> wood in the closet Arrow. When asked, Hopman told told the police, quote, I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and keep a little bit record of it. And maybe I was just on the closet and was reading the paper and put down the address. I can't give you an explanation about the telephone number. Why would he put down someone's address and phone number that he was never going to call or contact? He says he was a little bit interested. Okay, yes, I'm interested in true crime, too. I do not write down their contact information on my closet door. No, maybe you should. Maybe, maybe Maybe I should. Essentially, that was not very helpful. No, that was a very poor testimony. Next, a sketch that the prosecution suggested represented a ladder was found in one of Hopman's notebooks. Mm -hmm. They say the guy drew a ladder, and so he must be guilty. And draw the ladders. Hopman said it's the work of a child. Fake news. Is that like equivalent to search history nowadays? Yes. Oh, gosh. We'd be nailed. That's what I'm saying. I would be. So next, they argue that despite not having an obvious source of earned income, he was able to buy a $400 radio, which is the equivalent to an $8,100 radio in 2021. That is an expensive radio, my friend. Yes. And he also sent his wife on a trip to Germany. So he doesn't have an income, but he's able to do that. Hopman was identified as the man to whom the ransom money was delivered because a witness sketch looked a lot like him, which honestly just looked like a uh, skinny white male. Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't get the. Spoiler. Witness sketches. Yeah. Uh, The witness sketch means nothing because nobody saw anything. Right. Finally, witnesses testified that he had spent some of the Lindbergh gold certificates that he had been, uh, that he had spent some of the Lindbergh gold certificates that he had been seen in the area of the estate on the day of the kidnapping and that he had been absent from work on the day of the ransom payment and ended up quitting his job two days later. So, Mm. of course, he must be guilty. I'm rich, bitch. Yeah. It was thought that he never looked for another job after quitting his last one, yet he was able to continue living comfortably. This is all like circumstantial, I feel like. Yeah, so when the prosecution rested, the defense opened with a lengthy examination of Hopman himself. Sure. During this, he denied being guilty. He Mm -hmm. insisted that the box of gold certificates had been left in his garage by Isidore Fish. Isidore Fish. He, we've touched mm-hmm. on, Lindsay talked about Mr. Fish already, um, but this- women with fishes. He mm-hmm. is the he friend who had returned to Germany in December of 33 and died there in 34. Deutschland. Um, 
in Deutschland with mm-hmm. the fisk. The fish. Fish. Die fish. It's der fish. Der fish. Fisk is Norwegian. Sorry. Oh, okay. There we go. Um, Hauptman testified that he found the box one day, figured it belonged to fish, and stored it on the top shelf of his kitchen broom closet because, sure. Why not? And it was later that he discovered that the money, which he found to be almost $40,000, which equals $617,000 in 2020, um, he said that Fish owed him about $7,500 in business funds. So he decided the money's mine now and was living on it since January of 1934. I mean, which, like, if your friend's dead, I what mean, else are you going to do with the money? If they owe you money, then hmm. Maybe he was like, this is interest. I would I would do it. I would too. Sorry. I mean, I don't blame him. Yeah. Looks yeah. like we're all going to jail. Uh, well, if your friend was alive, that's different. But if you know your friend is dead. If we have traceable money. If we have traceable bills. So if you ever leave money at my house, okay. make sure they're not traceable bills. I, I don't fucking know if they're traceable. Isn't everything traceable nowadays? Isn't that the point? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think. I no. could not tell you. So next they called Houtman's wife, Anna, to the stand to corroborate Mm -hmm. the fish story. But on cross-examination, Anna admitted that while she hung her her apron every day on a hook higher than the top shelf, she could not remember seeing any shoebox there. Basically saying, I don't really think there was a shoebox there, but he says there was. I don't know. That's a high hook. It is a high hook. Which also maybe like Unless it was a low shelf. Maybe not paying attention because it's just like her routine, you know? Yes. I mean, I could get that too. (laughs) The highest shelf is waist level. Of course. Additionally, rebuttal witnesses testified that Fish could not have been at the scene of the crime and that he had no money for medical treatments when he died of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, Fish's landlady, the Fish lady, testified that he could barely even afford his $3.50 weekly rent of his room. So she's saying, like, this guy doesn't even have money. This can't be his. Yeah, this, what, you said 40000 Yeah. $40,000. Yeah, that's a lot of money when you can't afford $3.50 a week. Right. So in closing, the defense argued that the evidence against Hauptman was entirely circumstantial, yeah, as it. no reliable witness had placed him at the scene of the crime. Nor were his fingerprints found on the ladder, on ransom notes, or anywhere in the nursery. Which, to be fair, no fingerprints were found in the nursery, period. Mm-hmm. So, but, but the babies. But the babies, which is weird. Like, not even the mom and the <laughs> I dad know, and the I nurse. I thought that was weird, too. Even people that said they were in there. Somebody wiped it down. Baby prints. <laughs> yeah. It was the baby. But how do they not wipe down the baby prints, too? Like, I True don't that. Ooh, Yeah, I don't know. Good yeah, so Parents were wearing gloves? all of this circumstantial weird. evidence, not surprisingly, that Hauptman was convicted and uh, he sure. was immediately sentenced to death. Oh, wow. Okay. Immediately. They needed to pin it on someone. I yeah. mean, yeah, they had a ton of scrutiny. So mm-hmm. it's the crime of the century, right? You have yeah, to yes. have somebody. So I think that they were at a lose-lose situation that yeah, they yeah. picked this guy and was like, yeah, you're going to be guilty whether Sorry, you're man. guilty you or not. You have a scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah. His attorneys appealed to the New Jersey Court of Errors and Appeals, which at that time was the state's highest court. The arguments for the appeal began in June of 1935. The timeline gets kind of important just for a point later. October of 35, New Jersey Governor Harold G. Hoffman secretly visited Hauptman in his cell accompanied by a stenographer who was fluent in German. Okay. After Dream job. Nine, right? Did yeah. you just go see criminals? You still have time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And translate? Mm-hmm. 
So after this meeting, the governor urged members of the Court of Errors and Appeals to visit Hauptman themselves to get their own opinion. In late January 1936, Governor Hoffman declared that he held no position on the guilt or the innocence of Hauptman, but then also cited evidence that the crime was not a one-person job. And he directed lead investigator Norman Schwarzkopf, to continue a thorough and impartial investigation in an effort to bring all parties to justice. So basically he was saying, this guy may or may not be guilty, but I think it was more than one person, so Mm -hmm. everybody should go down for it. A couple months later, in March of 36, word got out that Governor Hoffman was considering a second reprieve or a temporary suspension of the execution. But there were questions about whether or not he actually had the right to do that as governor. And later in March, Hopman's second and final appeal asking for clemency was denied. After this, Governor Hoffman announced that this was the final decision and he would not be granting another reprieve. He's just going to wipe his hands of it. I think he probably found out he doesn't have that authority. I thought the governors did have the authority with the executions because they would get a call from the governor well this is in the 30s i don't Um, know okay so maybe things are different i am not sure outside of his control though there was a postponement of the execution to investigate the confession and arrest of an attorney by the name of paul wendell in relation to the case and soon after the prosecutors informed all involved that the grand jury actually voted to end its investigation without charging wendell and we'll get into wendell a little later basically concluding that they had their guy in Hauptman, and there wasn't much evidence on this wendell so to continue on with the execution as planned Hauptman then received a last-minute offer to commute his sentence from the death penalty to life without parole in exchange for a confession, but he refused. So on April 3rd, so this all happened in March, April mm-hmm. 3rd of 36, Bruno Richard Hauptman was electrocuted and he died. I feel like that's very fast compared to how long people are on death row now. It yeah. moves so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. After his death, some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous questions about the way the investigation had been run and the fairness of the trial. Their claims questioned witness tampering and planted evidence. Hauptman's wife, Anna, sued the state of New Jersey twice in the 1980s for the unjust execution of her husband. They were both dismissed due to prosecutorial immunity and because the statute of limitations had expired. Why do you think she waited that long to sue the states, though? Uh, In my personal opinion, I think people um, later came along, studied the case, and Mm -hmm. kind of gave her fuel to be like, oh, Oh, actually, this was terrible. Yeah. But it was too late by then. Gotcha. Okay. But she continued to fight to clear his name until she died at the age of 95 in 1994. Oh, poor girl. As with any big case without concrete evidence, there are several alternative theories that have popped up over the years. The first is that it wasn't a one-man job and that while Hopman was involved, he had help and that help was never brought to justice. There are books that have maintained Hopman's innocence altogether. They highlight things like inadequate police work, at the crime scene, Lindbergh's interference in the investigation, the ineffectiveness of Hopman's counsel, and weaknesses in the witness and physical evidence. 
there was one author, a Lloyd Gardner, who reported that a fingerprint expert applied a rare silver nitrate fingerprint process to the ladder and didn't find Hopman's fingerprints, even in places that the maker of the ladder had to have touched. So since they think that the wood came from Hopman's attic, they think that the um, Hauptmann must have been the maker of the ladder. And on the inner places where you can't really wipe down fingerprints, there weren't any fingerprints and there weren't Hauptmann's fingerprints either. He claimed that officials refused to consider the expert findings and the ladder was then, after they couldn't find anything, it was then washed of all fingerprints. And to rebut that, former FBI agent Jim Fisher wrote two books on the case, and within one of them, he addresses these claims. He states, Today, the Lindbergh phenomena is a giant hoax perpetrated by people who are taking advantage of an uninformed and cynical public. Notwithstanding all of the books, TV programs, and legal suits, Hauptman is as guilty today as he was in 1932 when he kidnapped and killed the son of Mr. and Mrs. Charles Lindbergh. So this FBI guy is like shutting it down. He's like, this guy's guilty. Get over it. Move on with your life. But another book, um, Hauptman's Ladder by Richard Cahill Jr. concludes that Hauptman was guilty, but also questions whether he should have actually been executed which seems valid. It's something that we've already discussed. Like there's no actual concrete evidence yet. This guy was executed. Right. And they executed him so quickly before we could really get answers. Right. But don't you think that that was kind of how it went down around that time? It like look at been, Missouri like, State Pen. Yeah. And I, I don't know how the timelines correlate, but I feel like it's similar where they booked somebody because they had to pin things on people and they executed them quickly. And then that kind of shut the public down. So remember, one of the times the execution was postponed while they Uh were looking into Paul Wendell. Yes. The attorney? Yep. Yep. Allegedly, a New Jersey detective named Ellis Parker had conducted an independent investigation in the 1936, or in 1936. The 1936. And obtained a signed confession from former attorney Paul Wendell saying that he did it, basically. So this is what caused the uproar and the excitement postponing the execution. But just as quickly as it came to light, once everybody started questioning, like, oh, maybe we should look into this guy, Mm -hmm. the case against Wendell collapsed when he then insisted that his confession had actually been coerced. So didn't really have anything to stand on. Hmm. Who would be coercing a confession when they had a fall guy already? Especially, like, with an independent investigator. Right. It makes no sense. It doesn't. So okay. on to more wilder ideas, which are my favorite, obviously. The theories. Yep. The conspiracies. Let's yes. hear them. I knew you'd like this case because of that. Absolutely. There are a couple of theories that Lindbergh himself killed his son. Mm-hmm. One theory revolves around the idea that it was a prank gone wrong, wherein Lindbergh climbed a ladder, brought his son out of a window, but accidentally dropped him, killing him, and then hit his body in the woods and blamed the whole thing on Halpin. Well, wasn't he known as like a really terrible He was a prankster. And two months before this happened, he took his child, Charles, and hid him in a closet and then told his wife that the kid was missing and had been kidnapped. And so when he was actually kidnapped (laughs) and this happened, Gal, the nurse, said... Like, went to Charles and was like, where did you hide him? Are you doing a prank? Like, just tell me now, are you doing a prank? And he denied it. funny. And he did, like, lots of pranks like these. Like, one with, like, 
he did it to a buddy with like something with gasoline and ingesting yeah. it. Yeah. So like he was not a funny prankster. Sounds hilarious. Yeah. Eddie Har. He's that guy that you're like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> this story has been featured on the TV show. It's on Discovery, Mysteries at the Museum. Mm. And they devote an entire episode to the case. Ooh. And that's where I got a few of these really juicy theories. So during the show, they discuss some of the reasons why Lindbergh could possibly be to blame for his son's death. And in no particular order, here are the potential reasons behind the Lindbergh theory. One, the family dog, Wagoosh. What? No. I'm sorry. <laughs> Please say again. The the family dog, Wagoosh. Wagoosh. Come yep. here, Wagoosh. Wagoosh. Uh, that'd be a terrible name Wagooshy. at a dog park. Wagoosh, you need to go outside? Wah wah. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I hate it okay. So Wagoosh was known to bark at everything, literally everything, every noise, every person. And Wagoosh did not bark that night. And mm. Lindbergh and uh, the nurse both said that if there was a strange person or an out of the ordinary noise, Wagoosh would have definitely barked. Raggy, he would have been all over it. That Wagoosh. Yeah. yeah. He's a good boy. Yeah, good boy. Lindbergh, though, was pretty adamant public- publicly that he didn't expect the dog to bark. So the idea is that Lindbergh wants people to go along with the idea that it's an outside job. And if the dog didn't bark, it makes some think that it didn't bark because it didn't have anything to bark at. Mm-hmm. Right. So... That means an inside, inside job right. or someone the dog was familiar with was yep. doing something crazy. Next, the day of the week. So the night of the kidnapping just happened to be the first Tuesday night that the family had ever spent in their new estate. It was still being completed. So how would someone know or plan this elaborate kidnapping scheme if the family was never there on that day of the week? Mm-hmm. You would think that they would plan it on a night when the family was known to stay there. And it wasn't planned. Like, Anne Lindbergh decided at 1030 that morning that they would stay the night. So how would an outsider know if they would be there? But also I had heard that every other window in the house locked besides the one to the nursery. Fascinating. So how would they know? Typically when people do these elaborate kidnapping schemes, you know, it's... They plan it out. They stake out the house. They're right. memorizing your routine. Right. Well, especially if like the happened. ransom note was like left in the window. Right. You've planned. Yes. Mm-hmm. So then we take a deep dive with the question of money aside, why would somebody want to kidnap the Lindbergh baby? Or put a different way, why would somebody want to make him go away? Mm-hmm. And the theory behind this boils down to eugenics. Mm -hmm. Uh, little charlie had a number of strange defects including a square head and the inability to stand up straight maybe his knees bent inwards and these observations that were actually made by a real physician a few weeks before the kidnapping coupled with the supplements that charlie's own mother reported were vital to his health point to him having rickets which is a disease that causes weak bones in children's and children mm-hmm. all children. the children all the children <laughs> like said something about like how his toes crossed is that part of her kids mm-hmm. yep. okay. oh that's how they, they also have, like, identified his legs. body because one of the feet had toes crossing over the other okay oh yeah so this was often treated with a medication called viosterol and during the time that charlie was kidnapped but before the body was found ann Lindbergh published his diet hoping that the kidnapper would follow it and this oh. published diet included a super mega dose of 14 drops of viosterol daily. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's why people think that it was rickets. Um, and a lot of the letters too, they said, we are following the baby's diet. Yes. So it is alleged that Lindbergh believed that only the fittest should breed, leading to the creation of the perfect race. So oh, the idea no. that he had an imperfect son would be a problem for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a uh, Hitler supporter. Oh, he, no. Yes. We get to that. Further feeding this theory is that Charles Lindbergh is said to have been a huge proponent of eugenics or the theory that humans could create a better race through selective breeding. There's even pictures of him with his arm out in what could be interpreted as a Nazi salute. Mm. And there are rumors that Lindbergh considered himself a superior specimen and wanted to spread his good genes. Yes, I heard that. The couple had five children after Charlie, and he allegedly fathered several, seven more children by three different women in Germany. And no one, no one knew about them until after his own death some years later. Um, but, I mean... But Mystery. I think DNA testing nowadays says that that was true. Yep. Mysteries yeah. at the museum, like, pictured these people. Yeah. So... He was, like, sowing his seed, basically, yeah. to... I think it's a thing. It happened. Yeah. yeah. With several women. So to summarize, this theory is that the whole crime was created by Charles Lindbergh to Hmm. get the child out of the public eye so that no one would catch on to the imperfections that were quickly arising. So maybe he planned the kidnapping as a public way to have Charlie disappear while they committed him to a mental institution. And maybe there was just a terrible accident that they tried to carry out the elaborate hoax for and a fractured skull could be due to being accidentally dropped from the ladder mm-hmm. which i don't know if you said when they found his body the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head yeah yep yeah but by the time they found him he was basically skeletal remains yeah. and had missing limbs from probably animals but he did have the foot with the toes crossing what do you guys believe happened I definitely think Charles had something to do with it. I think Lindbergh had something to do with it. I do too. And I love a good conspiracy and a lot of the pieces make a lot of sense, especially like the Nazi theory and the eugenics. Um, I just, what I struggle with is the fact that Hauptmann had the ransom money, but it could have been planted. Oh, totally. I think what happened, and they talked about this in one of the documentaries I watched about him, was that he basically controlled the entire investigation. Mm-hmm. He told police what to do. He was dictating mm-hmm. everything. And so I think he had he a used hand his power, in it. For sure. He used his power. He had a hand in it. And I think Hauptmann was his fall guy. He and, was a scapegoat. Yeah. And he the was money probably was planted. poor. And so he was probably, you know, tempted by this money. He probably, mm-hmm. it, in my opinion, he may not have even known anything that was going right. on. Just like, hey, uh, here's some extra money. You yeah. Want this? And, and I believe yeah. Altman that he thought it was his friend's money that he gave him. And so he just took it yeah. and used it. Yeah. Not knowing what happened. Yep. That's what I believe That's happened. That's where I'm at. But another reason why this case is so important. Did you guys talk about this? The kidnapping? What? So the case prompted the U.S. Congress to finally establish kidnapping as a federal crime. Um, if a kidnapper crosses state lines of the victim. So by late 1935, this was like a thing. Like before that, kidnapping was not a federal crime. Like you said, the FBI couldn't get involved. Yeah, I did kind of briefly mention how it was a state mm-hmm. state issue until, uh, so, who was it, Roosevelt? Yeah, FDR. Who, it was FDR. Yeah, who said that, uh, nope, it's going to be a federal crime and so, the FBI is going to take over from here. Yep. So because yep. of this case, kidnapping is a federal crime. Sad. All around. And it's another very unsolved. sad. It's very sad. Like, all the things I was seeing, like, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there that Lindbergh was involved, but 
everybody pretty much agrees. Like the wife, the mom was not involved. Like she, I don't think she was involved. I don't think the nanny was involved. I think it was Lindbergh and probably a group that he created. Mm -hmm. Boydston. Oh yeah. I, I agree. I think that it was Lindbergh and I think that he got away with it. Yep. And he was pretty much a dirtbag, which we didn't know at the time because Hitler was kind of not really coming to power during this time. Yeah. But once Hitler before, did come to yeah. power, then we kind of all learned what a dirtbag Lindbergh was. Ay, ay, ay. And if we go with that theory, then an innocent man was executed. Yes. I do believe an innocent man was executed I in this too. situation. I do, too. He was the scapegoat. So I guess maybe that is one of the pros of us having such a long term to get people executed. Yeah. There's time for appeals. There's time to really look into it to see. So we're not executing as many innocent people. Yeah. I think we're still executing innocent people. I'm sure that happens. But maybe it's not as much because they're not rushing it. Maybe. Who knows? I don't know. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in this week to our true crime episode about the Lindbergh kidnapping. You can always find us at thetipsyghost.com with our socials linked for there. Or you can find us at thetipsyghost at gmail.com if you want to shoot us an email. Please give us a five-star rating and a great review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it, and it really does help. All right, guys. We will catch you next week. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.